Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a very good afternoon uh, to Mark Kapchanga, who joins us from Nairobi, Kenya, for the first time on the show. For those of you who have been following China-Africa relations, or if you just do a Google search for the words China and Africa, Mark's name is definitely going to come up. He's a regular appear a feature uh, on our Facebook page and our Twitter feeds, and we've referenced him several times on the past show. He's a journalist who is... Uh, you know, sometimes controversial, often provocative, and always very interesting. Uh, he writes for a number of different publications, but for our purposes today, he writes uh, on China-Africa relations for the Global Times newspaper. Now, those of you not familiar with Global Times, it's one of uh, China's more provocative, more kind of aggressive uh, state-owned newspapers, and it really gives a, a nice forum for someone like Mark to kind of sound off on China-Africa relations. So today we're going to really just throw the doors open and have an open conversation, all things related to China-Africa relations with Mark Kapchenga. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to join you from Nairobi. Thank you very much. Okay, let's start. You, you've been writing about China-Africa relations as far as I can see now, going back at least three years, uh, going through some of yeah. your, your archive material. Sure. Um, you know, you write for a newspaper like the Global Times. And yeah. you, one of the themes that I've seen in your work has been a get off your ass, stop complaining Africa, get in the game, compete with the Chinese, you know, stop complaining and go. Now, I guess I like that. And that's the provocative part of what you're saying. But what I don't see in your writing is the same type of aggressiveness towards the Chinese. Is that a fair criticism of your work to, to kind of put forward? I'll say it's a balance. It's a balance. It's a balance. It's kind of uh, an objectivity that leans towards uh, that favors uh, China for that matter. Because if you re if you look at the Global Times, that paper is owned by the Chinese by the ruling party. And so, to some extent, when you write your pieces, they tend to edit in a way that it will it will not it will not hurt the guy who is financing this newspaper. Like I remember one of the stories that I wrote about was on corruption in Africa and how China is promoting uh, this vice. I remember very well the story was killed. The same thing happened when I wrote a story about uh, the aggressiveness of Chinese media in Africa. I remember very well it was all killed. But the explanation that I got was that uh, the Global Times is not in the business of promoting other media houses. But I try as much as possible to complain. I'll not say that because Global Times is funded by the ruling party, it means that they are not focused on the stories that criticize the activities in Africa. They have been very, very kind on my side as far as writing critical stories are concerned. I criticize them, and I also applaud them where they deserve to be applauded. Um, so, how, so can you take us through your, um, you know, before we get to wider China-Africa issues, can you take us through the process you go with when you write a story for Global Times? Do you pitch them ideas, or do you write something and present it to them as a as a finished kind of comment? And then, you know, kind of in in cases where they where they not, where they don't completely reject it, um, yeah. do you sometimes have to work with them to to slightly adapt the tone? Okay, what happens is that uh, there is that relationship I've been having with them, I think, since June 2012. And uh, what I normally do is uh, I'll pitch a story to them, a number of stories. 
And of course, they'll advise me that these are story to focus on, these are story to focus on, and they give me a timeline. At the same time, they'll also advise me when there is a critical issue happening in Africa and they need it reported about, they'll also call me and give me that assignment to work on. And normally the basis of my assignment is that there is an, engage, an engagement. If it is a pitch, I pitch it to them. I tell them this is the, the pitch that I want to focus on. This is the topic that I want to focus on. These are the issues that I need to work on. And they'll advise me. They'll tell me, do this, do this, and not do this. Focus on this issue because this is very current. Or they'll just tell me in advance that to discard this story because it's not as current as we would like it to be. So it's something that we really engage each other probably in a day or two before we come up with a with a, with a, with a, with a good topic that we can write about. What's the reaction that you get from Africans about your writing for Global Times and when they see the work that you're doing? Well, you see, in Africa, I think we tend to be very critical of our work. And I tend to think that's the best. Uh, it's very fair to be critical to a journalist or to any writing. And I get a lot of comments as far as my issues are concerned. They tell me, oh, you should have been more aggressive. You should have been more critical about this issue. You did not highlight this and this issue. But you see, the problem with my writing is that Africa is a continent. So there is no way I can focus on one particular issue that is so much, so much conspicuous in a particular country and fail to be as fair as possible, say, to other countries in Africa. So my stories tend not to focus on a particular country, but Africa as a whole. And that's an issue that at times when my friends in Nairobi ask me, you wrote about uh, CSR activities, in Ch uh, Chinese CSR activities in Africa, but you did not talk about anything that they're doing in Trukana, anything they're doing in Mombasa or anything they're doing in Nairobi. So they would like to see my pieces focus more on particular projects Say, give a three project in Ethiopia, write something about it. But you see, the Chinese audience is relatively huge and they want something wholesome, something to cover the entire Africa. So if I wanted to write something about Gibe three, the, the dam project in uh, Ethiopia, I'll also need to write about uh, Kariba Dam or something to do with the Kosombo Dam. So it's, uh, it's, it's a holistic kind of writing that I tend to focus on. And that doesn't um, go well with my, with my readers in Africa. Do you keep do you keep track of the kind of hit rates your different your different pieces get? Have you did you get data from them about which pieces were particularly popular and 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 which were they? Yes, I get I get a lot of feedback from uh, from my editor in China. They advised me that this story was a particular hit. This was not a particular hit. This was a hit. I remember in 2013 when I was, uh, I was a student in the United Kingdom, I wrote a story about how China is changing the culture, the, the culture of working in Africa by the introduction of a 24 working system, 24-hour working system. And I gave an example of the thicker road construction in Nairobi, the 70-kilometer superhighway that links uh, our satellite town Thika and Nairobi. I gave that example because I realized that the Chinese were working day in, day out. They were having three shifts of eight hours. So there is no way that construction, when it started, it was never stopped. So it was a culture. It was a kind of a culture that we thought it was somehow going to transform Africa because because Africa has been talking about introducing a 24-hour economy where our engine could be running without stopping so that we can actually register some growth. 
and we thought that was a very critical issue to to write about. I got a lot of uh, a lot of uh, feedback from uh, my editor, and actually, I think that's the story that uh, I'm told around four million people read. Four million! Wow. Yeah, yeah, uh, I yeah. mean that's really impressive. Now, yeah, it let's, is impressive. Yeah, let's yeah. stay with. I mean, that shows you when you deal with the Chinese media market. You know, the numbers can yeah. be just absolutely massive. Uh, yes. On Feb, let's go. Let's stay with the Chinese work ethic in Africa. Uh, that was the yes. title of a, an op-ed that you wrote on February second of this year, and yes. and it's an interesting point to kind of talk about because it is one of the friction areas between the Chinese and Africa and Africans across the continent. Uh, and by the way, I think it's worth noting that the, the Chinese have the same problem in other parts of the world, including the United States, uh, yes. Europe. So this is not a uniquely African problem that, you know, the yes. Chinese have uh, a bizarre work ethic. I mean, which is by normal human standards, working seven days a week, you know, from dusk yes. till dawn is not what most people kind of do. But the Chinese have, the, and you know, this, this drive that's just unbelievable. Howard French ta- wrote about it in his book, uh, after, you know, China's Second Continent. And it's caused tension on the part of, from the Chinese point of view, is they look at Africans and they'll say often, uh, they're lazy, good for nothing, lazy, they don't want to work. Uh, yes. Locals, again, this is not a uniquely African thing, will look to the Chinese and say, you know what, life is too short, I don't want to work seven days a week. Um, yes. and, and you, what's your take in, in your op-ed on the Chinese work ethic? I think it's a kind of work ethic that uh, Africa hungrily needs. It's something that will turn around uh, the continent that was seen to be a dark continent. We have a lot of resources, and one of the key resources that we have is uh, is our capacity, our human resource capacity. We are very much educated. If you go to South Africa, you go to Nigeria, you go to Ghana, you go to Kenya. Our guys, our youthful talent is so educated, but we don't get that opportunity to fully exploit what we have. So I tend to think the work... The, 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 the traditional way of working in Kenya or in, in Africa, for that matter, starting from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. should be done away with if we want to turn Africa into an economic engine. And this can only be done if we cultivate the culture that the Chinese guys, the Chinese companies are bringing to Africa. It is already being taken in a very positive way in Nairobi. If you look at our transport system today, the road that was constructed, the 70-kilometer uh, stretch of road that was constructed that, that, that I've just talked about, we see there is a 24-hour operation of public transport system, and that's what we want in Africa. So to some extent, I'll say that Africans are not lazy. It's a perception that Africans are lazy. It's only that we've not gotten that opportunity to fully cultivate what we have in our brains, and we can move this engine of, um, engine of, uh, of Africa forward. Crucially is that I've seen many Chinese companies, because they've been talking about this kind of laziness, they see it as a kind of laziness. Of course, even when, I, when you talk to Nigerians, when Nigerians come to Kenya, they tend to think that actually Kenyans are relatively lazy. And when you talk to a Kenyan who has worked in Tanzania or in Ethiopia, they'll at the same time talk about some form of laziness. I think it's a form of misunderstanding. It's a culture that we've not cultivated, and we, if we decided to cultivate it, it's something that can actually give us some maximum output. And I'll take a positive look at what the Chinese are doing now in Africa. And what they're doing is that they're training their guys, they're training even Africans, so that they can change that work ethic. At the same time, they're holding seminars. 
to break down that uh, cultural gap that you're facing. But most importantly, they're entering into collaborations or partnerships with, with universities, local universities around. So from the word go, when you're in third year, second year, or even first year or fourth year in your university, you are taught you're taught on what is expected of you after your graduation. So it brings about some understanding that we will want in Africa, as far as China-Africa relationship is concerned. Um, to, take, to, to look at the China-Africa relationship, in a, to look at the China-Africa relationship on a wider level, what are some of the biggest um, you know, kind of misconceptions that Africans have about China, do you feel? As far as labor issues is, con is concerned? Well, yeah, let's start with labor um, and the labor issue, but, but you can also take it wider if you'd like. Well, the biggest misconceptions that I think uh, the, you're talking about Africa, the misconception Africans have about the Chinese, isn't it? Yes, yes. Well, one of the biggest misconceptions that we have is influenced by the Western media. You realize that Kenyans or Africans, for that matter, we have that obsession of reading New York Times, Washington Times, The Guardian, The Independent, all those Western media kind of stuff. And you'll realize that the Western media is relatively harsh to these Asian countries, especially China, which is very aggressive as far as its engagement with Africa is concerned. So that kind of misconception that the Western guy, the Western media has with, China, with the Chinese has influenced how we think and how we perceive uh, the Chinese. And one of the biggest misconceptions we have as far as the Chinese are concerned is that they are here to steal our resources. They are here to exploit our youthful talents. They are here to steal our resources like oil, like minerals. So it's something that uh, Af Africans are relatively friendly to the Chinese, but our misconception has wholly been influenced by the Western media. And it's, a quite, it's quite an unfortunate scenario. So if they're not there to steal the oil, if they're not there to kind of steal the resources, what, how do you explain why they're there? To, to, of course, to, to some extent, their presence, uh, their presence in Africa, to be fair enough, their presence in Africa is a blessing in disguise. Of course, they're, they're there to get that oil, to actually up what the deficit they're facing in, uh, in, in, in China. But most importantly is that we are getting, Africans are getting a return out of this perceived exploitation by the Chinese companies. We are seeing roads. Uh, those days, uh, back in the days when uh, the Chinese had not yet entered Africa, you realize that a lot of money will be spent on consultancies, training some guys from Western countries, the Wazungus, what we call the Wazungus. But today, if a Chinese said that I'm going to construct this stretch of road, it will not take even a year before the work starts on it. So I think to some extent, the Chinese presence in Africa is a blessing in disguise. They're lighting up Africa. We are talking about Gibe 3 projects that will serve almost six countries. It will light up Africa and the cost of energy will go down. The erratic supplies of energy that industries have been facing in Africa will definitely dip. So what I'm saying um, is that this, enga this engagement, uh, this engagement as, a, as a matter of fact, is benefiting Africans. I've just talked about, uh, about uh, the lighting up of Africa through the construction of uh, big dams in Africa, like the Ethiopian uh, dam, the Gibe 3 controversial energy project. 
we could also talk about the modernization of in, of our infrastructure like the thicker Nairobi superhighway they are also constructing a very big uh, a very major railway project from Mombasa to Nairobi and this is being replicated across Africa it's not just about Kenya so we are seeing a lot of chinese presence in Kenya in in, in Africa for that matter and it's turning out to be a blessing to to the african continent I think you know kind of just to you know kind of if you you present quite a sunny you know kind of um you know description of of the situation um yes. if I can bring the shade to it um yes. it also brings a lot of debt um yes. you know kind of a lot of all all of these all of these um infrastructure projects are all of course financed with loans frequently f- yes. uh, from the chinese exim bank um mm. and now that the chinese economy is slowing down the you know, kind of commodity producers, you know, which are many African countries, are being hit particularly hard, um, and there's a lot of worry now that that countries that that were flying high on selling oil or selling metals um, are now going to be sitting with massive amounts of debt um, and not you know not really anything to pay it back with. Like, how would you react to that kind of view of of the same situation? It's actually it's something that is worrying us because if the economy goes down, it means even the the penetration in Africa that has been very ambitious with us will also go down. So it's a it's a worry on our side too because our debt levels are going up, and if our debt levels go up, that means that we'll have a lot of liabilities and uh, it may impact negatively on the growth of our economy. So I'll say to some extent that. Uh, Yes, we are benefiting from this modernization of infrastructure. We are getting a lot of benefit as far as the disengagement is concerned. But the debt thing is something that needs to be brought forward, something that needs to be worried about. But I suppose the issue is how to worry about it, you know, kind of because, I mean, there isn't really a way around it. Like, if, if you want to modernize infrastructure, then you need to finance it, and then debt becomes part of, part of the equation. Yeah, actually, it's a it's a two way thing. It's something that um, you have to modernize your infrastructure, but at the same time, you cannot modernize your infrastructure if you don't undergo some some if you don't you you, you don't spend. So, uh, what what I tend to think is that what we need to do is to get our priorities right as Africa. If it's a project that warrants us to get some debts, a project whose return on that investment will be relatively higher than the debt, then I think that will make sense. But if you realize that you invest in a project, you undergo some debts, you, you, you undergo some debts that will see the returns out of it probably be lower than the debt level that you, you, you are going to incur, then I think that will not make sense. If we focus so much on the energy projects and uh, roads projects and ports for that matter, this is something that I think would be of critical importance to our economy. If we turn around our economy so that our environment, our investment environment becomes as conducive as possible to foreign investors, then of course with the coming in of uh, foreign inflows, it means that uh, at the end of the day we'll we'll have that capacity to repay our debts in time. I'd like to step back for our final question and kind of, again, take the big view of how Africa's geopolitical positioning is changing with the arrival of the Chinese and in this new kind of globalized era. Uh, On February 9th, uh, 2014, you wrote in in an op-ed entitled, Beijing Soft Power Winning Over Africa. And let me just read something to you and, and get your take from it. You said, quote, 
Nowadays, the Europeans' influence on Africa is waning and China's entering the global picture. The comfortable lead the U.S. and Europe enjoyed in the past years is slowly being undermined by the Chinese language, values, ideas, history, and products that are quickly being absorbed in Africa. And you seem to indicate with that, with that sentence that you see a shift, you know, a major, major shift underway across Africa where the long-standing relationships with the former colonial powers and the cultural power of the United States uh, is now changing, maybe not towards China, but to be more complex than just the binary relationship that, say, Cote d'Ivoire had with Paris or to say that Kenya had with London. Um, tell me a little bit about what we're going to see in the next 10 years and from, from Mark Kapchenga's point of view in terms of Africa and the world. I think uh, the engagement or say the relationship between uh, African continent and the other continents, that's the Western world and uh, Asian economies for that matter, will solely depend on, um, on the leaders that you're going to elect, on the leaders that you're going to, to give the powers to represent us to these uh, global meetings. And uh, what I tend to think is that, uh, from my point of view, you realize that um, the Western world, say Europe for that matter, our former, our former colonial master, they are tending now to adjust their, their rigidity. They are tending to be as flexible as possible to what we need, to what Africa needs. They are tending to be as friendly as possible to us by virtue that China is actually taking over what they used to do in Africa. I'll give you an example. Just before the swearing-in of our president, or I think just after the swearing-in of our president, Uhuru Kenyatta was facing um, uh, uh, some trial in The Hague. He said that he'll not, it will not be business as usual with the, with the British government. And I tend to think to date the relationship has been maintained in a way that it's not as good as it used to be. And Uhuru said that with some form of arrogance because he knew that he's turning his eye on China. He knew that China could take that bit, the role that uh, the British government used to play. So to some level, I tend to think Africa is going to be a winner if our leaders play their cards very well. But at the same time, we may end up being losers if we are not as intelligent as is expected out there. So it's a matter of how we engage these characters. At the end of the day, it's Africa that is in need. It's Africa that we lose in case we fail not to attract these other guys, the Western world that is seen to be losing ground in Africa. So to some extent, I tend to think that what is more critical is that we need to bring all these guys on board so that we benefit from that combination of energies. Well, not shy with his opinions, Mark Kapchanga writes for the Global Times newspaper in China, uh, as well as a number of other different uh, publications uh, across Africa. But per certainly for our interest, uh, you should look up on the web the, uh, his writing for the Global Times. Just look for Car Mark Kapchanga online and you'll find him there. Mark, at the end of every show, one of the things we like to do is kind of introduce people to where they can follow you online. What's the best way for people to stay in touch if they want to follow what you're reading and writing? Uh, for my reading and writing, I normally share them on Twitter at Kapchanga. Kapchanga. Just follow him on Twitter. And Kobus, if people yeah. want to follow you on Twitter, what's the best way to stay in touch with you? 
I'm on uh, Twitter at Stadenesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And I'm also on our Facebook page, it's facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where we aggregate China Africa news every day. And pretty much any time Mark has a, a piece that comes out, we do post it on our Facebook page. It's a fantastic dialogue that's going on with mostly young people from all over the world, uh, 250,000 people. So Mark, I hope you can check us out on, on our Facebook page. And really, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this evening. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. And we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.